appreciate you guys. Faithfully, yeah, give them a hand. They do a brilliant job. You're going to give them one. Give them a good one. <laughs> we appreciate you guys. We're thankful. Hey, YPs are happening today, our Young People's Discipleship class. So um, Steve will take those guys from our 12 and 13-year-olds. You're welcome to go right now. Uh, meanwhile, I'd like to turn your attention to one verse in the Bible, just one that will start this morning with, and it's Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Um, because it's called Romans, that's straight away a clue that who it's written to. It's written to a group of Christians in Rome, okay? And, uh, and um, we'll look at that verse. It's right there. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. In actual fact, Paul, Paul was writing to them not to... He was actually trying to address a little issue that they had. And uh, so he, he says this... Um, who's ever been to Rome? It's an interesting place, isn't it? Incredible place. I've just had the privilege of going there. and um, uh, I went to a church in Rome. Um, I don't think it was the one that was planted in, the, in Jesus' day, but you know, it was a good church. So here we go, Romans 14, 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I'll just say it again. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's, um, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, that's an interesting verse. In actual fact, it's a pretty powerful verse. It's got much information in very short, uh, not so many words. It's got some incredible information. In actual fact, enough information for me probably to preach about three different messages on, but I'm just going to take one this morning. Is that okay? We won't preach three in the one morning, but just one. See, the believers, if just a bit of the backstory to this verse, is the believers in Rome w were divided over a, a special dietary um, um, standards they had. See, some of the Christians in the church in Rome actually thought it was bad, it was evil to eat meat, and so they were saying, we just, we're going to eat just vegetables. Um, and others were saying, no, that's not right, you can eat everything. And so the problem arose. Now, if each Christian had kept his conviction to himself, they would have been no problem. Who understands that? If we, we all have different dietary little things that we do, and that's fine. But you know, if if you know, you might be vegan, you might be vegetarian, you might be you might be oh, whatever carnivorous. I don't know, whatever you are. But um, <laughs> but the reality is 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 we know we don't have to say, well, this is how we should do it because this is what the, the Christian church was doing in Rome. Unless you do it this way, you're not godly or spiritual. Oh. And we understand that that's not true. Um, so each Christian didn't keep his convictions to himself in Rome, and they began to criticize and judge one another. And the one group was sure that the other group was not at all spiritual because of what they were eating. And so they broke this disagreement in the church out. And Paul writes this letter, and he addresses the issue of, uh, in Rome of why they should stop this. Because you and I know that whatever we eat, there's no problems with eating stuff, is there? Okay, there's no problems with food. Now, I know that some people have certain dietary requirements. That's cool, but um, it's not a general problem. I, I, I would say that to also say this, is that I think the early that church in Rome was getting so caught up, so caught up with little rituals of what you should and shouldn't do, 
And that's why Paul says, the kingdom of God, hey guys, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, it's not little rituals of what you should and should. Now, I understand there's things we should and shouldn't do. But if you base your Christian faith out of a set of rules and rituals, it becomes a pretty dead faith. Would you agree? It's all about, as he says, the kingdom of God is from the Holy Spirit. It's something that's working in your heart. Not, not the externals of our life so much. We, we, we deal with the externals of our life because we know that there's some good morals and good proper things to do. But in relation to what we need to live, it's all about the inner workings of our heart and that's how we develop faith. I, um, a couple of weeks ago, had the real privilege, and as has been intimated already, to go to Israel. And there's many things that happened that, that I saw in, uh, in Israel, and I won't seek to share all that today. But I do want to say that there was an element of, of I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at, whether it was just ritual or whether it was heartfelt relationship with God. And one of the things I went to, there's this place in the middle of Jerusalem, at one of the highest points in Jerusalem, that where in the original time of King David and King Solomon, they built a temple, and that's where they worshipped God. They no longer had this tabernacle that they were, you know, the tent that they took up and down as they traveled through the desert. They built a permanent place to worship God. And before they built the temple on the highest point in Jerusalem, they built this thing called, they call it the Temple Mount, which is basically just the foundation or just retaining wall for the temple to sit on. Does that make sense? And on one wall of this retaining wall of, of the temple mount, they call it, because it's got four sides, it's really just a box, but it's quite massive. And on the western wall, which some of you may know as the wailing wall, which the Jewish people don't call that and don't like that, by the way. If you go to Israel, don't call it the wailing wall. I found out. Um, <laughs> But call it the Western Wall. It's the Western Wall. And I went to the Western Wall, and, and um, I'll just show you a quick couple. I can't help myself. Just a couple snaps of the Western Wall. Um, here I am at the Western Wall. And um, you've got to be careful there because you just can't go, you know, videoing everybody. And, I, you know, like the guy on my left, he was an intense, he was an intense prayer of some type. Um, and the guy on my right was, I thought, I'll just sneak in there. At least I'll touch it and see if God does something incredible. And you know what? There's nothing special about the Western Wall. It's not divine. It hasn't any powers. It's got nothing. It's just that it's the closest place to, what the, to where the temple was. And so the temple's not there. Did you know the temple's not there anymore? But what's there is a Muslim church, synagogue. Muslim with a big gold dome. They call it the Church of the Rock or whatever they call it, Dome of the Rock. But anyway, so that's a bit sad. There's no more Christian church there. There's a Muslim church there in its place. But this wall is the closest for the Jewish people to, to go and pray. And the interesting thing was, is, as I kind of observed the people praying, you know, they, they're going for it. And I thought, gee, they're passionate. But I wasn't quite sure whether it was passion driven by ritual or passion driven by relationship with Jesus. Because stuffed in the wall, can you see the wall there stuffed in the cracks of the wall? I'll give you a close-up of it. Um, here we go. Is all these pieces of paper. Now, I'm guessing, I wasn't kind of game enough to pick up one of the pieces of paper and read it because there might be someone who just put it there and like it comes across and chops my hands off. I don't know what they were. So I just left them there. I took a picture. But 
you know, you can see that after a while, it, it, the pieces of paper, they've got prayers on them apparently, and people are crying out to God. I just hope once again, it's more than just a ritual thinking, this wall, it's, it's divinely anointed, and so it's because I'm putting my prayer there in the crack of the Western Wall, my prayer's going to be more answered than when I go home and just pray the prayer at home. And I'd like to say to you, you and I know that's not right, is it? Because God answers prayer. We know God is not located in a certain spot. God is everywhere and he can be certainly in your life and in your heart. And I'd love to think if, if, it, if that, that would be even today that you'd come to that experience if it's necessary to know God's love and touch in your heart. And so I, I bring those pictures up simply to say that what makes a Christian a Christian is not, the fir- is not, is not first the external activities of rules and regulations that we follow what makes a Christian a Christian first is the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Okay? I think we understand that, but sometimes I think we've got to be reminded of that because we can fall into just rituals about this is how I do Christianity. Remember last Sunday I said, well, now I'm just going to do, this is we're going to do Christianity now, and now I'm going to do family now. No, God wants to be a part of all. Now I'm going to do church. No, he wants to be a part of all. Now I'm going to do work. Why don't you let God into all? He wants to be a part of all. So... It says in this verse, and we'll go back to it again, in Romans chapter 14, 17, it says, what is the kingdom? It says the kingdom of a God. What is the kingdom of God? Have you ever thought about it? It's not a geographical location, as I've mentioned already. Some would say the kingdom of God, in the, even in New Testament time, when Jesus was walking the earth, would be in the temple that was there. They said, that's the kingdom of God. No, it's not a geographical location. The kingdom of God is any place where Jesus is set up as king in the hearts and lives of people. Do you know the kingdom of God is with you? You this morning. Actually, in fact, this is the kingdom of God. It's not this building. This is just a place to keep the rain out. It's you are the church of the living God. It's the kingdom of God in us. It's not a location. And where we say um, Jesus, and you know, the kingdom of God is wherever we say, Jesus, I'm not God, which we never literally say, but we sometimes act. As if I'm God. And how do I do that? Oh, well, I'll look after myself. I'll do it my way. I'll sit on the throne of my life. But it's wherever we we, we acknowledge that I'm not God, and God, wherever you are, that's where your kingdom is. That's where his kingdom is. So this can be the incredible battle that takes a lifetime to deal with. There are always letting God be king over everything in our lives and our hearts. So my prayer is that you wouldn't find religion, but you would find freedom. Because I believe that's what Christianity is. Freedom. Not freedom just to go and do whatever I like to anybody and hurt people. No, no, not freedom. But freedom in, within the, the, the principles of his word and his life that he has for you. To be the very best that you can be. And that's what he has. That's what he desires for you. Because I think every person who I saw praying at the Western Wall was really looking for freedom. I think all those men and all those women, because the men are on the left and the, men are on, and the women are on the right, and there's a little dividing wall. Um, you know, I don't really see that that's necessary, but that's how they do it. And I was thinking, everybody who's there passionately praying, some of them come three times a day, every day of their lives, folks. Wow. Do you know the government pays for the Jewish people? They give them a benefit and an allowance to actually come and just pray at the Western Wall three times a day, every day of their lives. Wow. I might take that up. That'd be, that'd be well, you know, you don't have to do anything, just come and pray. 
Um, that's a good thing, isn't it? But I'm not quite, as I said, I'm not quite sure what their prayer is all about. So I, I think they're all looking for freedom, but some of them have just found a ritual, and it's quite dead, and it's sad to see that. Um, and and to, far be it from me to judge the hearts of the men and women I saw standing there praying. Some of them could be incredibly uh, passionate. I just hope they find and will realize that one day that Jesus is the Messiah because they're still waiting for him to come. So who knows that that kind of, that, that, that when you get into a ritual, it's not freedom, but that's a form of slavery. When you just get stuck in a rut well, this is what I've got to do to please God. You know what? You can't do anything more than you're doing today that wouldn't that would make God love you anymore. Doesn't mean we don't, oh, well, I'll just live my own life. No, 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 no. Don't do that because you'll have a shocking life. <laughs> but, and you, but that's the truth. God, you can't do anything more. God loves you full stop. You can't do anything really worse than you've done that would stop God from loving you. He doesn't agree with what we do. He just loves us. So, so the Bible, let's go on. The Bible says the kingdom of God is three things. Did you notice? Three things. It's righteousness. Come on, what is it? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because you can have some of those things in your own thoughts, but we just need it. It's a spiritual thing in our hearts. And, you know, as I read this verse, I've got I've to appreciate, I've got to, I think we all have to appreciate nothing in the Bible is random. And so righteousness, peace, and joy must be significant. Would you agree? It must. I don't think, you know, like Paul just put down the three words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just, oh, what do I do? Oh, righteousness, oh, peace, joy. No, I think, I think he knew something. And I think God inspired him to write this. Um, and so I see that righteousness and peace and joy are the direct opposite to what people experience today. Not everyone, but I see a lot of people who, who don't experience righteousness. They don't feel right within themselves. They don't experience peace and they don't experience joy. Instead of righteousness, people are experiencing something else. Because I believe in this context, the opposite of righteousness is actually a thing called shame. Because when you're right with God, you feel good about your identity. But shame is, is feeling bad about something that's happened or done in your life. I think instead of peace, people are experiencing, this is an easy one, anxiety. And instead of joy, I think people are experiencing despair today. There's an organization called Beyond Blue in Australia. They're a mental health organization. And they, they say to statistically, out of the 25 million, just over the 25 million plus people in the nation of Australia, 4.9 million of them today are experiencing some level or some element of despair. Some element of anxiety. That's a lot of people. So I thought what we would do is just take a moment today, not to look at all three of these things, but just to look at righteousness because let's look at finding freedom, um, finding righteousness in our life and understanding that. But more than importantly, I, I wanted to look at finding freedom from shame because I think freedom of shame has has, can grip parts of people's hearts and it can stop them from moving forward. And so I'm passionate about finding freedom for my own life as well from shame. And you might not understand shame. That's okay. I just want us to quickly have a look at it today. Is that cool? Because I think the Holy Spirit wants to do something in our lives and bring freedom, release, and liberty in our lives as people of God. So I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, yeah, let's talk about shame. That's exciting. 
Yeah, look, hang in there. I know you're not going to give me many amens about this, but, you know, it's okay because there is an answer. There's good news. Is that cool? So let's move. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 13. Let's read this story that happened right at the beginning with a young couple called Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. That's a voice we've all heard before. If you do that, you'll be right. Haven't you heard that voice? No, it won't hurt you that much. Come on, do it, sad. Indulge. <laughs> We've all heard that. There's a voice that says, you're not, yeah, no, it's not bad. And the other voice says, don't touch it. We had those voices. But God knows that in the day, verse 5, that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and guess what? They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made, something, made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, and then the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God said, very important questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman. (laughs) The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent deceived me and I ate. We'll leave it there. Interesting. This, it's, it, there's nothing new under the sun. And within this passage of Scripture is so clear some of the incredible information about this thing, about how we need to live in righteousness and not in shame. Shame, someone describes shame sometimes as the swampland of our soul. And I guess if you're going to call it that, that means it's, it implies that shame is murky and it's not fully understood how it happens or how it should be stopped. But we want to address that. Well, it has, it's been documented. That shame leads to a whole host of negative behaviours. It says shame can lead to addictions, depression, violence, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. It's not, and, it is, and as I said, it's not a recent occurrence. It was around since Adam and Eve. And shame can be produced by any number of causes and, um, and that we can make us feel shame. We can feel shame because of moral failure. We can feel shame because of a bad business thing that's gone wrong or a failure with our finance. We can feel shame. Or we can feel shame uh, because we didn't meet the standards that we thought we should have. We had a certain standard in our life and we didn't meet that standard and we feel shame because of that. I wasn't the mother I should be. I wasn't the father I should be. I wasn't the child I should be. I wasn't the friend I should I don't know. I wasn't the boss. I wasn't the employee. I don't know what. But we can feel shame because of the certain things that we, you know, you can be saying, I, I, 
I, I thought I was gonna, I'd be over it by now. I thought I would have dealt with this by now, but I haven't. So, so a number of things. We can feel shame because of what th- things we have done. We can feel shame because of the things we failed to do. We can feel ashamed because of what others have done to us, or we can feel shame what others failed to do. We can feel shame. The truth is, there's not a person here today that probably hasn't felt that element of shame in their lives. I remember as a 14-year-old, I was, at, uh, I was in grade, I might have been 13, 14, I was in grade 8 at Gleason State High, and we were out doing a physical education, um, we are out doing that class, you know, and the, t- the physical education teacher was teaching us how to play hockey, and so we were on the, on the field, and, and we, he, he led us across to the middle of the field, and he turned around, and he said to me, Hewitt, why didn't you bring the balls over? I told you to bring the balls over here. Go and get them. And he called me a derogative little term, uh, which wasn't swearing, but it wasn't nice, and, and I didn't, hadn't heard him, hadn't heard him, sorry, say to me, bring those balls over. I didn't hear that. Or he, he must have said it, but I didn't hear it. And he really railed me out and bailed me out. And I walked back across by myself, picked up the hockey balls and brought them back. But I can remember now I identify and understand the, felt, the feelings I had because at that moment I felt really ashamed. I felt shame because... In front of all my friends, he gave me a, you know, I was the idiot who didn't bring the hockey balls over. And it, I'm not saying everybody even thought that about me, but that's how I felt. Isn't that true? We go to the, we go to the lowest common denominator in negative thought. And so shame, I, I, I now later on, I didn't at the time, I, I, I realized there was a sense of shame about that situation that unfolded for me. Now, you, some of us may be already thinking about things that happen in your life, and it, it's not my intention to make us uncomfortable today, but it is my intention for you to be free. Is that cool? See, Genesis 3 gives us four ways we cope with shame. And, and I, I've identified this in my own life fairly clearly. And as I looked at each verse, I thought, yeah. Because first, we, we, with shame, what we do is we avoid it. Avoid it. Verse 7 says that they sewed fig leaves together and they tried to cover up their shame. Obviously, their nakedness. But it was the shameful. They were naked. They realized that. And none of us like the feeling of shame. And when we don't like something, we try to tend, we try to, and we tend to cover it up. And, and we, you'll notice no one had to tell Adam and Eve how to cover up. They, 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 or instruct them in how they do it. They just knew straight away something wasn't right. And no one, no one, God didn't say, oh, you've sinned, you've eaten of the fruit, now cover up. No, they knew intuitively within their hearts that this is shameful, we're naked, and they covered, they avoid, they didn't want shame, and they covered up their, they wanted to cover up the shame, and so they'd done physically something external as best they could. So that's sometimes why we get religious. Because we try to act, oh, well, I think this is how Christianity should be outplayed. And so I'll just, I'll just do this or do that. Uh, you know, I'll just make sure I, 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 uh, I look a certain way or have a certain image. And we, we're covering up something in our heart sometimes. I'm not saying that we can look into each other and all say, oh, he's got shame, she's got shame. No, that's not where we're at. But I'm just saying we can cover up and we do certain things. Um, just had to cover up. They wanted to cover their nakedness. 
They wanted to cover their insufficiency. They wanted to cover their wrongs so they didn't feel that way anymore. Shame is not a good feeling. We want to cover it up so we don't feel that way. And if we can press it down into our soul far enough and cover it up, we don't feel shame and so we're cool until something comes along and it rises to the surface and it brings that memory again. Oh, you see, that's why a lot of people numb the feelings of shame by substance abuse, by shutting down emotionally, avoiding shame by not talking about anything else except don't talk about the issue, and, if you, and by shifting the conversation, or even sometimes I've seen precious lives, precious people walk out of a room because it was just uncom- too uncomfortable. There was just elements of shame there that, 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 you know, that people just couldn't handle. So we see with Adam and Eve, they tried to cover up. And that's one of the coping mechanisms for shame. The second coping mechanism for shame is withdrawal. And I see it in verse 8. They hid themselves from God's presence. You see, Adam and Eve, because of the feelings of shame, they wanted to keep away from God and they sought to hide. Uncomfortable as it is to hide in the garden... You know, it's more, un- it's more bearable than to face God and acknowledge the shame and the vulnerability. Did you get that? It's better to hide in the garden and feel the shame than face God and, and be vulnerable. And sometimes we withdraw. We withdraw. We withdraw from friendships. I can consider that we would, sometimes people withdraw from church. People even withdraw from marriages. I mean, they're still there in the house, but there's no real relationship happening. And sometimes it can, can be, not all the time, but it can be because of the feelings of some element of shame. We, we, we can withdraw behind digital things like social media. You know, have you ever seen, if you've, got a, if you've got a phone, it'll tell you how many hours you spend on the phone. Sometimes it pops up, I get it to pop up on my screen automatically, and I get a bit shocked. Hour and a half, two hours. I thought, what? no. Look, admittedly, I've got my Bible on my phone, and so I read that, and I try and... So when it goes four hours, I think, wow, super spiritual today. (laughs) But I'm not fooling anybody if I'm on Facebook. If I've been on Facebook for three quarters of an hour answering all your birthdays. And I've got Instagram, but you know what? I, just, I only look at Instagram just to see what my friends have posted. That's all. <laughs> anyway, we can hide. Sometimes just busyness. Sometimes, where am I up to? <laughs> you completely put me off track. <laughs> withdrawal, that's what we do, we withdraw. Sometimes we withdraw with busy schedules. Just keep myself busy, 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 busy. And sometimes that withdrawal can be because of the sense of don't want to let out the truth. I don't want to get caught in a conversation with truth. We withdraw emotionally. We withdraw from public. We withdraw behind a public image. Sometimes we can't do it. We will withdraw behind whatever tree that makes those shame feelings go away. Just like Adam and Eve. As a young boy of six or seven. I remember, um, and once again, it's something I've had to deal with, but I was riding my push bike up and down the front of my grandparents' shop. And when I was six, that, that was like, that was the end of the 1960s, the start of the 1970s. In actual fact, it was 1969. And, um, and those are the days when there was no big supermarkets, but the, corner, the iconic corner store had everything, and my grandparents had one of those shops. And so it was a busy little shop, groceries, comics, ice blocks, cakes, 
you know, honey, everything, newspapers, everything. And so I was riding my push mic. My grandmother, this particular day, poked her head out the door and said, James, it would be an idea not to ride up and down the front, outside the front of the shop door, because you could hit somebody. I said, that's okay, Grandma, I'll be really careful. She didn't have time to argue with me. She popped in, got, you know, started to serve the customers. Wouldn't you know it, what happened? It was like prophetic. Within five minutes, an old gentleman in his 70s or 80s, I remember what he looked like. He was frail. And I whacked him with my push bike. Thankfully, he had a walking stick, so he just went left about three meters. <laughs> and I looked at him in horror. I dropped my, this is my response. I remember to this day, I dropped my bike on the footpath. Who cares about your bike when you're in trouble? Just leave it on the footpath. I, I ran through the shop down into my parents, uh, my grandparents' house, which was adjoined to the shop, and I found the bed, and, I, and, I, and it was one of those beds in those days that were quite high off the ground. So I, I, I got under it to the furthest point against the wall and stayed there. Within two minutes, I heard the footsteps of my grandmother. It was like God was coming into the garden. <laughs> and I hid myself. I withdrew myself. I tried to find every fig tree I could, but she found, because there was... It was a big house, many rooms, but she found the bed. I don't know how grandmothers do that, but she, and she peered under the bed and said, James, you've got to come out and apologize to this gentleman. I went, nah, <laughs> because even though my grandmother was an authority, authority in my life, and even though she was important in my life, and I loved her dearly, and she was such a wonderful and beautiful grandma, I thought the pain of her not liking being disappointed with me is nowhere near as great as the pain of going out and feeling the shame of confronting what I'd done to this poor elderly gentleman. And to this day, I never went and saw him. He's probably dead now, living... Well, he would be. If he was 76 and I was 6, you do the mass. But if I get to heaven and he's the first person at the, at the pearly gates, hello, James. Have you got something to say to me? I'll go through that no, experience of shame again. But the reality is, is that you know I now understand as a six-year-old what I was feeling. I felt intense shame for what I'd done. And my grandmother had just told me that could happen, and it happened. We all have those. We, we, now, I'm not putting a general, but sometimes we have those experiences, don't we? And God wants to bring his, his hand upon that in a wonderful way. And I want to talk to you in a moment how God can do that and just heal that area and bring righteousness in our life and not shame. Thirdly, we cope with shame by attacking ourselves. Here's a biggie, verse 10. Adam, when God said to Adam, what have you done? Adam said, it was this woman you gave me, maybe eat of the fruit. It was no longer, oh, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> None more of that. It was this woman. And, what had, and then God said to Eve, what have you done? Well, it's this snake. And of course, the snake, we won't go there, didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. So we can see, here's the point. We attack, we, um, let's get it right. Sorry, not attack ourselves, we attack others. We play the blame game. This is, I went, I've skipped to the fourth one, not the third one. We, we, we play the blame game. 
we shift responsibility, we shift the blame and get angry, and we say, well, it's my parents' fault, or it's my brother or sister's fault, it's the workplace fault, or it's the boss's fault. We shift the blame to anybody so we can cope with this feeling of shame so we don't have to feel it, and we push it further down into our soul. So what is happening today was happening. I want you to understand that. Isn't it interesting? Not only do we blame others. Here's the fourth one that'll make the third point. The fourth point is that we blame our... I said it before. We blame our what? Ourselves. So what happened? Adam reveals something of what's going on in his internal world when he says to God, Adam, God says, where are you? And he says, I was afraid and I hid myself. Was Adam ever afraid before this point? Never. So within his internal world, he's struggling with himself. And see, God asks Adam a question. Um, Who said you were naked? It's a rhetorical question. Because God knew the answer, and God knows that no one told Adam that he was naked. He figured it out himself, and God is just wanting Adam to acknowledge that the disobedience of eating the fruit has cause and effect. And one of the things for him was fear. And so often we have this internal dialogue go on in our lives when shame comes upon our life, or we, something happens, something happens to us, or we do something, and we have this internal dialogue running through our mind, which is always attacking us. It's not just about attacking others, but we attack ourselves. And it's like this, I'm so stupid, I'm so useless, I should have known better, I'm bad, I'm terrible, I'm nasty, I'm ugly, and we have this internal chatter that goes on and on and on and on. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? And you've got to, and that's because of sometimes the shame. I've had it happen. And I still sometimes pick up on it, and I've got to deal with it. Stop going there, James. We attack ourselves and thus pull down our own sense of worth and identity by ongoing inner dialogue of self-criticism. And that's not a healthy for our emotions. So, there was the, there's the coping mechanisms for shame. Okay? And it's still happening. Isn't it interesting? As it happened with Adam and Eve, it still happens today. There's nothing new under the sun. I do want to point out at this point, there is some good news in this message. Okay? If God wants to finish, if God was to finish the Bible, for instance, and just write three chapters of Genesis, it'd be a very short Bible and a very sad little book. Would you agree? But the rest of the book outlines this incredible redemptive plan. And it started right there in chapter three of Genesis. In other words, God had this plan for humanity. Even though we'd blown it, he's got this wonderful, wonderful plan that wasn't just for Adam and Eve, it was for you and me, for us to come out of shame and into that sense of righteousness. And we're going to talk about that. Thankfully, um, we see God had a wonderful plan. And you know what it involved? It involved, because in our shame, we can think that sometimes God is disgusted with us and moves away from us and he's disappointed with us. And, that he's not the, and that's not the case at all. In actual fact, in the garden, who came looking for Adam? Did Adam come looking for God? No, God came looking for Adam. Isn't that good? That God moves towards us in our shame. That God moves towards you. He's not running from you. He's moving towards you today. He's not, he mightn't agree with what we've done, but he loves, he moves towards his, his creation. That's you and me. With an idea of loving and fixing and helping the issue. We have a God who doesn't move away from the sinner. We serve a God who walks towards us and towards us as imperfect people. That's good news. And our shame might keep us from God, but it doesn't stop God from drawing near to us. And he wants to take away the fig leaves and help you to be the best version of you that you can be. Shame takes three things to grow, and we'll finish with this this morning. Shame, I've discovered, 
As I looked at scripture, and it says it will take secrecy, it will take silence, and it'll take judgment. That's how shame grows. But um, we need to understand um, when God asked Adam, Where are you? I mean, if you're playing hide and seek with God, please understand that he's just pretending because he knows where you are. He knows where you are. And so when he asked that question of Adam, where are you? He was simply reaching out to Adam and lovingly and graciously wanting to give Adam an opportunity to acknowledge where he was with internally. Not externally. He knew he was, but internally. So I'm thankful to a God who reaches out to us. So as I said, if shame grows in secret, then the answer to finding freedom from shame is honesty. Honesty. Can't be secret. It's got to be honest. Shame comes from the root word, which means to cover, to hide, and um, which comes out of you know that attitude. I just, I, I just don't want anybody to know what I've done. I just don't want anybody to know what they've done to me. I just don't want anybody to know. I just don't want anybody to know that I'm not perfect. We know that already. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> We just want, I just don't want anybody to know. I have to, I have to project that I don't have any struggles in life. Now, I, I, I don't think we generally do that here. I'm just talking about other people. Is that okay? Yeah, you got my point. Um, so, you know, and here's the problem. Of covering it up keeps other people from knowing us, and further, it keeps us from knowing ourselves. When my little girls used to come home, uh, you know, when they're all at school together, they'd come home ready for the school holidays, two weeks of school holidays, they'd take their school bag and they'd throw it in the corner of their room or under their bed. Two weeks, uh, a week within, into the school holidays, um, Michelle and I would say, where are the girls' lunch boxes? And so we'd say to the girls, hey, could you get your lunch boxes? Did you leave them in your bag and not give them to us at the start of the school holidays? Yes, Dad, yes, Mum. So they'd bring the lunch boxes to us, and as we opened it, this whole new world had grown within the lunchbox. Um, the potent and smell that erupted in our nostrils was quite incredible sometimes. And that half-eaten sandwich, which now looked like some kind of little rat with all this mold hair growing over it, the half-eaten container of yogurt had grown a, old, a new culture of its own. It was probably healthy for you, actually. And the, and the banana skin, well, it was just on another level. So... We'd sometimes even have to throw the lunchbox away because you just couldn't get the, the, the pungent smell out of the box. It was easy just to go and buy a new lunchbox. Parents ever been there? Um, so I, I say that to say this. Bacteria, interesting enough, grows in the dark when it's covered up. Is that true? And, and, and what I was looking at in my girl's lunchbox was bacteria to the max. And so, but it'll only ever grow in the dark when it's covered. Interesting enough, that's what our lives are like. The same is true of our lives. The things we keep in the dark, they'll never get better. They will get worse. In 1 John 1, 7, it says this. We'll put this verse up. It says, but if we walk in the light, and actually, in fact, I'm going to use this verse several times, Kate, so it's cool. I'll, I'll let you know the last time. But as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all what? Sin. Okay, great verse. Can you see the first thing there in this verse? See, if shame grows in secrecy, that's why God tells us to walk in the 
light, which is all about bringing shame out of darkness so that we don't grow bacteria in our lives. We don't grow rubbish in our lives. We grow something that's healthy. Who knows, if you want to get sun-kissed clothes, my mother always would say, I've got to, you know, the best clothes to wear are the sun-kissed clothes. I don't know. Sun has a way of killing everything. Is that true? I'm just a mere male. I wouldn't have a clue. But that's what my mum said. So bringing it into the light, it brings the best out of that. So you wear it. Apparently, you can get vitamin D rubbed off on your skin if you wear sun-kissed clothes. I don't know. But notice God has tells us, because our reflect... Notice God actually says, but if we walk in the light, he actually tells us. You've got to walk in the light. Why does he do that? Because my reflect action, and often yours, I think, is to actually walk in and to walk hiding stuff. I don't want to show shame, man. I'll, I'll, I'll withdraw. I'll retreat. I'll avoid. I'll blame. I'll blame myself. But I don't want to. So we, but the first thing we see is to actually, from this verse, we see it needs to be brought out, bring into the light of honesty, and it can destroy the shame over our lives that keeps us in prison. And I've discovered one moment of honesty with God can bring untold freedom into your life. Of just humility and humbleness. As that verse this morning, Ben said, come and humble ourselves and pray. The second thing about shame, if, if we say it's not only, um, if, it, if, if shame grows in secrecy, or, and, and, the, and, the, and the remedy for that is honesty, then shame also grows in silence. And I want to say the remedy for that is relationship. Because as you see in this verse, it says, as we walk in the light, it's in the light. We have fellowship with who? One another. Now, this could be the more difficult part of this whole thought. Because we don't want to share with someone else that the realities of what we feel in our hearts of shame. But you don't need to tell the world. You just need to tell one. You just need a friend who's got your back who loves you, who cares for you, and will not judge you because of what maybe has happened to you or what you've done, done yourself. We, we want to keep things silent, of course. We, want to talk, we don't want to talk about it. We, we don't want to think, well, my reputation will be spoiled. What will people think of me? There's the fear of rejection, what a person might say because people, you know, and people suffer in silence so often because they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want to do what we walk in fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. It is a wonderful thing. See, um, it needs to be trusted friends, but I've discovered that some Christians say, all you need is Jesus. Well, you're right. All we do is need is Jesus, but we just not need the vertical relationship with God or Jesus, but we also need a horizontal relationship with people that love us and we trust. And you know what I've discovered is when we come and share there comes this accountability that actually keeps us from returning to that spot or that place or that thing in either physically doing something or in our minds going there. It, it builds something within our lives that says, I'm accountable. And, and I've found great joy in being accountable to people. I've also had people be accountable to me and I've found victory and strength because we need, we need Jesus to do a work, but sometimes we just need Jesus and we need God with a a face that we recognize and could be your best friend who you trust and love and they can just share the mercy and the love of God and you can pray together. James 5.16 says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it goes on, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But it's, you don't, that's not everybody. You don't need to give it to everybody. You just need to sometimes, if you really want to bring it out in the open and the light, 
sometimes just that interaction and connection with the person that is able to not judge you, but stand with you. I love that. Here's the third thing. Shame, if, and the last thing this morning, if shame grows in judgment, see, it grows in, in, in um, what was it? Silence. Secrecy. Thank you. It grows in silence, but it'll also grow in judgment. And so if it grows in judgment, we can, the, the, the remedy for judgment is mercy. And see, the last part of the verse says, not this one, sorry, 1 John 1, 7. You look at this. It says, um, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is the last time I'll use that one. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what? All sin. That's, folks, is incredible mercy. See, if we walk in the light, that's honesty. If we walk in the fellowship with one another, that's relationship. But the blood of Christ cleanses us. That's called mercy. And so you can deal with shame by dosing, sorry, you can't deal with shame by dosing it in judgment. You can't deal with shame by dosing it in judgment. If you've got a cake and it's got the wrong ingredient, it's not going to help the cake if you just put more icing on top. And I've had a cake like that. <laughs> My dear precious little girls who are learning how to bake had put too much of something and it tasted terrible and they just oh it's okay let's put more cream on top no it doesn't it still tastes bad and we can't dose we can't we can't dose shame it doesn't help by dosing of judgment it just it'll just sink it deeper into your soul so you know i was just thinking about the kind of god that i would love to see deal with me in my shame and the kind of god that i would love to see deal with me is a perfect kind of god who would would meet me in my shame, but instead of loading judgment on me, shows great mercy to me. That'd be a God I could believe in. And that's exactly what God does. Because we see that God's, he, when he died on a cross, when Jesus died on the cross, all the behavior and bad behavior of me and all the sin was placed on Jesus instead of being placed on us. And, and he did that um, so they took the judgment for my bad behavior, and I received um, affirmment and value and a healthy identity. I received, um, I didn't receive the punishment, but I was affirmed. And Jesus had done that on a cross when he shed his blood, and his body was broken for humanity. And so right from the start of Adam and Eve, did you know that there was this moment in Adam and Eve's life where God said, take away the fig leaves, God shed blood. He killed an animal and he, made a, he got the skin of the animal and he covered Adam and Eve. In the same way today, the blood of Jesus covers us. And when we walk with that understanding of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus took so that we could be affirmed and we could be valued and that our punishment was given and put on his body that should have been put on ours, I tell you, that is an incredible understanding of great mercy. No one in the world has done that for you and me except one person, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. The wonderful work of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'll finish with this. For he made him, made him who knew no sin to be sin for what? Come on, let's start again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. There we go. 
we come back to where we began. Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's what? Righteousness. How do we obtain the righteousness? Through honesty, um, you know, not silence, through this mercy and not judgment. And Jesus Christ provided that. He provided, he said that we might be righteous. You might say, well, what's this righteousness? Well, so that the shame may be lifted from our lives. Okay? Shame may be lifted from our lives, and we have healthy identity, healthy affirmation, healthy value, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's, right, that's righteousness. It's, if I try to get righteousness through what I've done right, it's never going to work because I've failed. But righteousness through what God looks at me, through the blood of Jesus, he sees righteous. And can I, can I just say this? Sometimes we mix up the words guilty and, and um, um, guilty. And what was the two I was going to just share? Sometimes we mix up these words. And I, I just want to explain this. Um, guilty and shame. Sometimes we, we think they're the same thing. Do you know guilty is not the same thing as shame? Do you know guilty... Guilt is actually a good thing. You're saying, really? Yes, it is a good thing. Let me explain. If you put your hand on a hot plate, straight away you remove it because, because the nerves feel the pain and say, don't do that because you're going to destroy your hand. Guilt, you know what guilt does? It works like that in our soul to make us go, hey, don't continue to do that. It's going to destroy your life. So guilt is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because let me say even furthermore, this is what happens um, guilt says, um, I made a mistake. But shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. See the difference? Guilt focuses on the behavior. Shame focuses on the person. I don't want to be... So shame needs to be dealt with. Guilt is not a bad thing. It just is a, like the nerve endings to our soul. that makes us realize, don't do that anymore. Don't go there anymore. So we see this wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us, the mercy. Instead of silence, is honesty, relationship, and mercy instead of judgment. Could we stand this morning? We're going to just sing a song in a moment, and we're just going to worship. Just one more moment before we dismiss everybody, but... See, I don't think what some, some of the things we're facing this morning can be just dealt with in a moment. Sometimes they can't be. But in a moment, God can bring the revelation to our heart to be, hey, I'm going to let you come and work in my life. I'm just going to help you continue to be what I need to be. God, in this moment, I'm just believing God would just maybe touch your heart, reveal stuff, and say, you know what, Father? I know that it's possible through you. We've been saying it all morning. The guys on the stage have been saying this. Things are possible in Jesus Christ. And you can do it. You can, you can go for it. God wants to. God has. God loves you more than you love yourself, I think, sometimes. Uh, in actual fact, I'm certain of it. And he has a wonderful plan. And he just wants to work. Let the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, not religious rituals and rites. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the what? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's here. And he wants you to just quicken and give you the capacity to say yes to him and say, yep, I need to let him be God in my life and do something.
Can we just sing this beautiful song this morning and then we're going to pray and then we're going to finish. For this moment, let him just speak to your heart and open your life. This worship time. A weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. 